Oregon needs nuclear energy's promise that they have both powers. I go for the panel and Is nuclear energy our only hope to decrease Oregon's carbon footprint? The energy mix shared by the West Coast and the options available to us as we try to balance. Yeah, can we? Okay, there we go. I think this is just booting up. <clears throat> so it's mobilizing Canada for the climate emergency with Seth Klein. And it's also lunchtime. University. 
And finally, uh, his book, A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency, which was published in 2020 and forms the foundation of, of much of what he'll be talking about today. Uh, I have a, a copy of it here. It's a really fantastic book. Uh, I, I won't belabor it. He will talk about the themes, but David Suzuki wrote on the back cover, uh, read this inspiring book to realize giving up is not an option and quote, can't be done, unquote, is not an excuse. So uh, with that introduction, I will turn it over to Seth. You have the floor. All right. Am I coming through okay? Yep. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian, for that lovely introduction. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. And thank you all for making time to join me uh, and for your interest on a Friday afternoon at the end of another tiring and challenging week. Uh, and, and my thanks to uh, University X, as we're calling it, uh, Policy Studies Program for the honor of being asked to give uh, today's lecture. I'm shocked to see you all here. Um, the, the, the book that I'm going to be drawing upon came out uh, a year and a half ago, so uh, it's wonderful to see the interest continuing. I'm I'm uh, joining you with gratitude from the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, otherwise known as Vancouver. Um, and as we seek to come to terms with the legacy of our colonial past, it's good to be virtually joining you at, at an event hosted by a university that's trying to reckon with that legacy. Um, by the way, uh, while I'm out here on the West Coast, uh, I do know your campus. I know some of you are from all over the place, but to the extent that a bunch of you are from uh, the university, I, I, I know your campus, I've spoken there before. Even better, in honor of today's event, I went digging into the bowels of my, my closet and I, I pulled out this little item, uh, uh, my CKLN t-shirt, from the late 80s or early 90s, because believe it or not, some 30 plus years ago, I, I spent some time as a CKLN volunteer in the basement of your building. Um, now I, I gathered that the uh, that storied community radio station that used to reside uh, in, in your university uh, folded some years ago. But back back then, I, I spent a little time uh, with the show with the uh, the wonderfully punny name of the classroom struggle. All right, enough of that. Um, so uh, for my talk, I'm going to be drawing upon my book uh, that came out a year and a half ago, A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. I'm going to, I've been asked to speak for about 35 minutes, and then I'm looking forward to lots of time for some spirited uh, Q&A. So uh, this past year has been one of our reckoning with the climate emergency, especially in, in my home province of British Columbia. Uh, first, it was the extreme heat dome event that shattered temperature records. It, it robbed us of almost 600 fellow British Columbians in less than a week. By the way, that's for some context, that's about as a quarter as many as have died in British Columbia from COVID in the entire pandemic. And, and to drive home this point, that June heat dome event was the most deadly weather event in Canadian history. I don't think we've really come to terms with it yet. And most of those who perished were isolated lower income seniors. And it was preventable. If their homes had already been unplugged from gas and converted to electric heat pump systems, uh, which also cool in the summer, as we urgently need to do to lower greenhouse gas emissions from our buildings, it's very likely that every one of those people would still be with us. That was followed by hundreds of wildfires and forcing thousands of people from their homes, most dramatically uh, burning the entire town of Lytton, British Columbia to the ground. Elsewhere in the country, it was flooding and drought. Uh, more recently in November, in, in, back in my province, it was the mudslides and flooding caused by uh, atmospheric rivers, a new word in our climate crisis lexicon uh, that, uh, that again caused immense damage to entire uh, small cities, uh, billions of dollars in, in damage, uh, killed another five people, uh, drowned about 650,000 farm animals. Um, I think many of us 
are wrestling with growing feelings of grief and anxiety as we witness these unfolding disasters. You know, we, as we emerge from one crisis and stumble into the next, feels like we're at this moment where we're kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire. And I'm struck by this, the paradox of this moment, which is that we, we, we mobilize to put fires out, but not to prevent them, to rescue people from floods, but not to prevent them. And often when these events happen, there's a tendency where people in the media describe them as the new normal. It's not the new normal. Uh, it is, I'm afraid, uh, but a taste of things to come. If you thought that the last two years of pandemic living was disruptive, you ain't seen nothing if we don't get serious about the climate crisis. Because as disruptive as COVID has been to us all, it didn't upend our food and water systems the way the climate crisis now is and will. And as anxiety producing as the pandemic was and has been, it didn't have the same physical effects that extreme heat does. You know, in the pandemic, particularly in the early months, remember how we used to gather and bang pots and pans at seven o'clock at night? Most of us, most of us became our best selves. But with extreme heat, it messes with our brains. It messes with our capacity to cope just when we most need to be our best selves. In August last year, we got to, as if we needed any other proof. The, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 200 plus of the world's top scientists, climate scientists, offered up yet another terrifying warning that we are on borrowed time. And, and more is coming in another major report from the IPCC at the end of this month. So make no mistake, folks, we indeed confront an emergency. And if we fail to act quickly, then over the course of the coming decades, things start to get very grim. A world that is unlivable and catastrophic for many, deeply uncomfortable and disruptive for all others, quite possibly ungovernable. So this is an ecological crisis, but I really want to emphasize this point. It is just as equally a human and social justice crisis and a civilizational threat. And for all of you who are teachers at this university or those of you who are students, this crisis will be the defining issue facing you for the rest of your lives. And you need to be thinking and learning together about what it means for future careers and, uh, and futures of, your, of, of you or your students and how you cope and adapt and how we together confront this crisis. But that's the last of the scary news you're going to hear from me today. Instead, for all of you feeling like me, deeply anxious, let me offer two reflections from my study of emergencies. So my book study of the Second World War, our shared experience now of this pandemic, and now that in that and then the period of climate emergency i want to offer two observations that i hope provide some some sort of solace the first is this all emergencies start with a period of denial let me repeat that all emergencies start with a period of denial but then my second observation is that at some point some sort of alchemy occurs a, a special combination of events and leadership that shifts the popular zeitgeist and moves us into emergency mode. And when that happens, these emergencies, once recognized as such, transform us. They transform our society, our social relations, our economy, our leaders. So think on these three crises that I just mentioned. Think about Canada at the brink of World War II. Both the public and the leadership were in denial. Despite Canada's declaration in September of 1939, it's worth recalling that even as the winds of war gathered in the late 1930s, our leaders were reluctant to recognize what would ultimately be necessary. And even once war was declared, historian uh, Jack Granenstein describes the early months as one where Canada wanted to prosecute what he called a limited liability war. And historians refer to the first nine months of World War II as the phony war. We had declared you know, war, but not really. And it strikes me that also that if you had asked Canadians in 1938, you know, this gang in Mackenzie King's cabinet, do they have what it takes to completely transform the Canadian economy and society as was about to happen? 
I'm quite certain most Canadians would have said, no, not this gang. And they had no reason to believe otherwise. The same group had, had, had been in leadership through the Great Depression and done mostly nothing. But then that alchemy of events and leadership, events like the fall of France that, that suddenly moves things, um, but also leadership to actually bring the public on board. Then look at the second emergency, look at COVID, right? Remember how, when we all first started to hear about this new virus two years ago, we were all in denial, weren't we? About how it was about to upend our lives. But then that alchemy of events and leadership. I don't know what events you remember. I remember when they canceled the NBA season. Now, no offense to you Raptor fans. I don't even watch basketball. Um, but I remember when that happened. But I remember thinking, wow, this is different. Um, but also, I remember seeing our prime minister in front of his house every morning. That also communicated something important. And, and like those Canadians in 1938, if you had asked me just a few weeks earlier, you know, are there people at Finance Canada and the Bank of Canada who are capable of quickly pivoting within weeks and creating these audacious new programs like the CERB and the wage subsidy? You know what, I, I, would, have, I would have said, no, there's no one home there who thinks that way. And I would have been wrong. Turns out they were there and they could. But then we come to the climate emergency. And at some level, we're almost all in some state of denial, not yet ready to leap into this grand transition. And certainly our political and business leaders are also, for the most part, still in denial. I want to be clear about this. They're not in denial about the reality of human-induced climate change. They are in denial about what confronting it actually requires. But we're all making our futile little bargains with the laws of nature, right? Please, you know, just a, a little more time with this vehicle or one more trip or please just a few more barrels of oil or my personal favorite these days, please just let us have this pipeline and we promise to use the money to fund the transition. The alchemy's first ingredient, the transformative events, those are already occurring. That's what these extreme weather events are, these attacks on our soil. But the alchemy's second ingredient, the leadership, it's not there yet. But look, so it was in 1939. Canada was on the cusp of being completely transformed by its Second World War experience. And yet right up to the 11th hour, our government and most of the public still hope to avoid being dragged into that fight. And I feel like that's where we find ourselves today in this similar awkward period. This is the time of our phony war where two summers ago, the federal government will pass a climate emergency motion in the House of Commons one day, and then proceed with reapproving the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion the very next day. So that's a dynamic that I call the new climate denialism. This, it's a concept I unpack in the book. Um, but as with the Second World War, I'm convinced that this phony war period isn't gonna last, that it is indeed about to end. Most of us know that the battle for our lives must soon get underway. Most of our leaders in government and business, you know, they're talking tough on climate, but indeed, they're not there yet. So I, I hope and believe that my book calls on us to adopt an entirely new and different approach to the crisis than the one that we've pursued to date. And the book endeavors to tell the truth about the severity of the crisis we face, but I have also been really gratified uh, that for the most part, people are finding the book unusually hopeful given the dire uh, subject. And the book's original twist, as the title suggests, and as I've already alluded to, is, is that it's structured entirely around lessons from the Second World War. There is, by the way, no small irony in me coming to this framework that I'm invoking. And I want to acknowledge that, like many of you, I'm sure, I also wrestle with this war analogy. My own political activism started as a teenager in Montreal in the peace and disarmament movement of the 1980s. Moreover, I am the child of Vietnam War resistors. That is, in fact, how I happen to be Canadian. Yet despite that personal history, I am now strongly of the view that climate breakdown requires a new mindset to mobilize all of society, to galvanize our politics, and to fundamentally remake our economy. 
In fact, this might be a, an opportune moment. I'm going to read a little bit from the book's introduction that speaks to this paradox about a wartime, about a wartime foot. Allow me to speak directly to a core doubt that's likely occurring to you at this point, a, a yeah, but voice in the back of your mind. You share a growing sense of alarm about the climate crisis. You want to believe that we can rally in time, but you question whether our governments acting on our collective behalf can really do what needs to be done. Years of disappointment, downsizing, deregulating, privatizing, globalizing, of doing the bidding of various corporate interests, and sometimes of downright corruption and cronyism, have left you skeptical that we can collectively accomplish what was done in the Second World War. We meet the contemporary threat in an era of cynicism and distrust, in which the very idea of acting together has been significantly eroded, along with trust in each other and our government. Our sense of collective ambition has been sapped, replaced by a prevailing culture of impossibility. I get all that, but come on this journey with me regardless. Why should you suspend your doubts about our collective capacity to rise to this task? Because wars transform us. Emergencies and disasters can bring out the worst in us, as we're all seeing this past week. But they can also bring out our best. The worthiest kind of leadership, whether at the grassroots or community level or the big P political level, seeks to animate our best selves. And in the face of crisis, such leadership does not shy away, but rather invites us to embrace a sense of shared purpose as we collectively tackle the emergency. I don't know if any of you have, been, have felt invited in that way to meet the climate emergency by our current leadership. American writer Rebecca Solnit in her 2009 book, A Paradise Built in Hell, the extraordinary communities that arise in disaster, details the beautiful expressions of human caring and solidarity that have marked terrible events. The San Francisco earthquakes of 1906 and 1989, the Halifax explosion of 1917, and the hurricane that hit that city in 2003, Hurricane Katrina, and the catastrophe it inflicted on New Orleans in 2005, and many others. Um, and, and that I saw on display in my province when the flooding happened in November, beautiful expressions of social solidarity. Today's climate crisis isn't just a demand that we remake our homes, infrastructure, and economy. It's an opening, a chance to rebuild trust, community, and democracy. American philosopher William James published his famous essay, The Moral Equivalent of War, in 2010. Excuse me, in 1910. James had just lived through the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And it was active in anti-war circles, opposing the Spanish-American War and other imperialist wars. But while opposed to such wars, James understood that people need the sense of meaning, purpose, and common struggle that comes with war. He proposed something akin to the Peace Corps or the War on Poverty, right, Solnit, a form of youth conscription, but directed towards something more worthy than war. Watching how people responded so well to the San Francisco earthquake provided James with evidence that in the face of disaster, people often behave magnificently, not only overcoming fear, but also caring for one another. The emergency creates a sense of purpose and brings out our best selves. James sought examples of events or struggles that could, quote, inflame the civic temper the way past history has inflamed the military temper. To which this book replies, look no further. Why do we need a new approach as we confront the climate emergency? Because what we've been doing simply isn't working. I want to screen share a slide with you, if I may. There. Are you seeing my chart? This slide shows Canada's greenhouse gas emissions going back the last 20 years with a little uh, hat tip to Greta Thunberg, who aptly describes the climate promises to date as so much blah, blah, blah. Now, we'll let this chart sink in. What you see, you know, some little ups and downs, it's basically a flat line. Our GHG emissions plateaued at an historic high. Put this in the language we now understand in the pandemic. We have failed to bend the curve. In short, we are not on a path to stave off a horrific future for our kids and future generations. We have run out the clock with distracting debates about incremental changes, but where it matters most, we have accomplished precious little. 
And now here we all are, staring down this harrowing gap between what the science says we urgently have to do and what our politics seems willing or capable of entertaining. And somehow we have to kick start something new. Now, I didn't actually start off planning to write a war story. The book project began as an exploration for how we tackle that gap. How do we align our politics and economy in Canada with what the science says we urgently have to do? And the book does do that. But the original book outline had only included a single chapter on lessons from the Second World War because I'd long been intrigued by the war as an example of rapid economic transformation. But as I delved into that work, I began to see more and more parallels between our wartime experience and the current crisis and ultimately decided to structure the whole book around those lessons. Because I see in that history this helpful and in fact hopeful reminder that we have done this before. We have mobilized in common cause across class and race and gender to confront an existential threat. And in doing so, we actually retooled our entire economy to twice in fact, once to ramp up military production, another time to reconvert to peacetime, all in the space of six years. So for all of us who, who, who follow the science and, and who wonder, can we really do what we need to do in the short window of time that we have available? Well, the answer is, we, yeah, we could because we have. So the book explores what wartime scale climate emergency mobilization could actually mean and look like. And each chapter jumps back and forth in time between stories of what we did then and what we now face. And, tries to answer questions like, what's the role of inequality and, and what did we do for returning soldiers? Is there a model for just transition there? And how did we navigate the complexities of confederation? And I found answers to all of those questions in that World War II history. But landing on this structure, you know, <laughs> this little hook of the war, it didn't just give me a good narrative structure for the book. It also jolted my own thinking about emergencies like I've worked on the climate file for close to two decades but this made me look at it with fresh eyes through the lens of emergency and I think with this historic excavation it helps to liberate our imagination and our our sense of possibility somehow that was all while writing the book and writing it all before the pandemic um, but what I didn't anticipate until releasing the book and being out in the world with the book over the last year and a half is how remarkably and deeply resonant this 80-year-old story remains for so many Canadians. You know, so many people have a family connection to it or their institutions have an important piece of their legacy embedded in that story. And I've, I've, I get to make a little mischief with all these audiences, you know, where I get to, I get to, you know, whether an audience is, is a group of labor or business or liberals or new Democrats or architects or journalists or farmers, I get to say, look at these people from this story. Look at this amazing thing that they did. And these people who you so admire. Um, well, here we are again. And who do you want to be? Since releasing the book, you know, and I've now done, as I say, well over a hundred events like this, um, and invariably the question comes up, how do you know when a government actually gets the emergency? And in trying to answer that question, it, it forced me to distill this 400-page book and into what I call my four markers of emergency. And they're a framework that we now employ uh, with the Climate Emergency Unit, which is the, the project I now work with. Um, so I'm going to show you my, my four markers of when you know that a, a government has actually shifted into emergency mode. They were written for governments, really federal and provincial governments, but they apply just as much to governments at any level, municipal, uh, indigenous government, an economic sector, uh, a crown corporation, a union, a pension fund, a faith institution, and for all of you at uh, University X, think about how these markers apply to a post-secondary institution because they signal when a leadership is truly in emergency mode. So here they are. There you are, I hope you're seeing them now, yeah? All right, 
You know that a leadership is an emergency mode when it spends what it takes to win, when number two, it creates new economic institutions to get the job done, number three, when it shifts from voluntary and incentive-based policies to mandatory measures as needed, and number four, when it tells the truth, when it tells the truth about the severity of the crisis and communicates a sense of urgency about the measures necessary to combat it. During the Second World War, the Canadian government did all of these things big time. And likewise, when you think particularly about the federal government response to the pandemic in the first year, for the most part, I would say they hit all four of those markers. But with respect to the climate emergency, so far at least, neither our federal government nor any provincial government of any political stripe, it's not just that they don't hit all four markers, they don't hit any of the four markers. So I want to explore these four markers with you in a bit more detail. And then I also want to offer two other important lessons or markers from my study of the Second World War that apply, I think, to the present crisis. So the first marker, spend what it takes to win. See, a benefit of an emergency mentality is that it, it forces governments out of an austerity mindset. In the first year of the pandemic, Canada's, you know, we saw this incredible ramp up in government spending to the point that Canada's debt to GDP ratio went from about 30% to 50% in a single year. Now that's a big jump in a single year. It still pales in comparison to the war, by the way. We ended the Second World War with a debt to GDP ratio well over double that, well over 100%. And when C.D. Howe, C.D. Howe was the, the minister in the Mackenzie King government, you know, ironically in your city, you have a right-wing think tank named for the guy. But uh, in the war, he was sort of like the minister of state economic planning. And he, he oversaw Canada's incredible wartime military production. And when he was pressed about this incredible ramp up in government spending, he famously replied, if we lose the war, nothing will matter. And in order to finance the war effort, the government issued public victory bonds and new forms of progressive taxation were instituted, including, by the way, a cap on profits, the kind of profiteering that we have seen in this pandemic that has undermined that, that, that line that we're all in this together. Uh, that kind of profiteering was illegal in the Second World War. Maybe in Q&A we'll talk a little bit more about how that was structured. I think we're going to need measures, tools like this again to finance the transformation needed for the climate emergency. But, you know, this extraordinary spending we've seen in response to the pandemic, to my mind, merely shows what could have been done in response to the climate emergency or poverty or homelessness all along. It turns out when our governments recognize an emergency, the money is always there. And just to give you a, an interesting comparison here, a couple numbers to mull over. Federal and provincial spending on the climate emergency and on, on green infrastructure pales in comparison both to the war and the pandemic. So consider this. For most of the whole first year of the pandemic, the Federal Bank of Canada was buying up federal government securities in order to finance the CERB and the wage subsidy and all that emergency response to the tune of $5 billion a week. Most of that increase in the debt to GDP ratio is held by the Bank of Canada, $5 billion a week. In contrast, Trudeau government spending on the climate emergency is about five to $7 billion a year. $5 billion a week versus five to $7 billion a year. So the Trudeau government and your Ontario government, they're not spending a little less than they should in the face of the climate emergency. They are spending less by something in the order of a tenfold order of magnitude. Marker number two, create economic institutions needed to get the job done. During the Second World War, starting from a base of virtually nothing, the Canadian economy and its labor force pumped out a volume of military equipment that is simply mind-blowing. During those six years, Canada, with a population less than a third what it is today, produced uh, 800,000 military vehicles, more than Germany, Italy, and Japan combined. 16,000 military aircraft, ultimately building the fourth largest air force in the world at the time. Here in my province, you know, where we seem unable to build the Sentinel BC ferry anymore, we produced over 300 ships, again, from a base of virtually nothing. 
And remarkably, the Canadian government, under the leadership of C.D. Howe, established, in order to, to expedite all of this, established 28 crown corporations to meet that supply and munitions need. Howe is a fascinating character to me, you know, because he's no lefty. He was on the right wing of the Mackenzie King cabinet. He made a lot of money in the private sector, but he was seized with the task. Um, and he was in a hurry. And any time the private sector couldn't quickly do what needed doing, he created another crown enterprise to get it done, right? This is a problem with us in the present. Um, uh, we're not creating those crown entities to just get it done, right? In, in, our, in the climate emergency, we've seen nothing of this sort. So in contrast to C.D. Howe's wartime creations, the Trudeau government has established two new crown corporations it's the, the Canada Infrastructure Bank, which is basically a vehicle for privatizing infrastructure and so far has accomplished very little. And I hate to tell you what the second one is. It's the Trans Mountain Pipeline Corporation. It's the one that makes all of you proud owners of a 60-year-old oil pipeline from Alberta to my province. If our government really saw the climate emergency as an, an, emer as an emergency, it would, like C.D. Howe did, quickly conduct an inventory of all of our conversion needs to determine how many heat pumps and solar arrays and wind farms and electric buses we're going to need to electrify virtually everything and end our reliance on fossil fuels. And then we would establish a new generation of public corporations, federal, municipal, provincial, and ensure that those items are manufactured and deployed at the requisite scale. And other new institutions, like a, like a civilian or youth climate corps, so that everyone who finishes high school and who wants to spend a couple of years helping us as, as a country meet this moment could sign up to do so. Or a new federal transfer, a just transition transfer to the provinces is another new economic institution I propose in the book. Maybe we'll talk more about that later. Marker number three, shift from voluntary and incentive-based policies to mandatory measures. As I showed you earlier, for the last 20 years, Canada's greenhouse gas emissions have just flatlined. Why? I think a major reason for that is that if you survey our federal and provincial climate policies today, you know what they almost all have in common? Oil company They're investment. Voluntary. Mm. We encourage change. <laughs> we incentivize change. We offer rebates. We send price signals. What we have decidedly not done is actually require change. If we're going to meet the ambitious greenhouse gas reduction targets we now urgently need to hit. We need to set clear near-term dates by which certain things will be required. For example, we would say it will no longer be legal to, to buy or sell a new fossil fuel burning vehicle as of 2025. We would mandate that no new buildings will be allowed to tie into gas lines as of next year. We would ban the advertising of fossil fuel vehicles and gas stations. Watch how we're about to get bombarded by advertising like that during the Olympics, right? That's how we would make clear this is serious. And marker number four, tell the truth and rally the public at every turn. See, it took leadership to mobilize the public in World War II. In frequency and in tone, in words and in action, emergencies need to look and sound and feel like emergencies. And the leaders that we best remember in the Second World War were these outstanding communicators who, who were forthright with the public about the gravity of the crisis and yet still managed to impart hope. And their messages were amplified by a news media that knew what side of history it wanted to be on and by an arts and entertainment sector keen to rally the public. And I think, you know, at least for the first year, that's what governments modeled in Canada during the pandemic, right? Emergency communication. The messages were ubiquitous. We got daily press briefings. We heard regularly from health officials. The media took seriously and really continues to its duty to provide us with necessary information on a daily basis. None of this consistency and coherence, however, is present yet with respect to the climate emergency. And when our governments don't act as if the situation is an emergency or worse, when they send contradictory messages by approving new fossil fuel infrastructure, pipelines for LNG plants, they're effectively communicating to the public that it's not an emergency. So those are the four markers. But I want to share two other quick lessons from my study of World War II before we 
move to Q&A. Two other important markers, if you will. One, and it's a thread that runs through the book, is that inequality itself is toxic to the social solidarity you need for mass mobilization. And that real mobilization means leaving no one behind. You know, there, there are climate policy purists out there who say, uh, you know, don't, don't link the fight on climate change to tackling inequality or all these other social justice issues. You know, don't make it more complicated. It's, it's complicated enough as it is. I think they're wrong. First, they're wrong because these issues are inherently connected. The wealthier you are, the, the higher your emissions, the poorer you are, the more vulnerable you are to climate change. But also they need to be linked because that's how we win. A successful mobilization requires that people make common cause across class, race, and gender, and that the public have confidence that sacrifices are being made by the rich as well as modest income people. During the First World War, inequality undermined those mobilization efforts and undermined recruitment. It's partly why we had the conscription crisis. Consequently, at the outset of the Second World War, the Mackenzie King government took these really quite bold steps to lessen inequality, uh, to limit excess profits. We saw large increases in, 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 in corporate income taxes, on, on upper income taxes. We saw the introduction of Canada's first major income support programs during the war. Unemployment insurance comes in during the war. The family allowance comes in during the war. The Marsh Report, this famous report that lays the architecture for the whole post-war welfare state, is written during the war and offered up to the public as a pledge and a promise that the country they will return to will look different and be more just and more fair than the one they were leaving behind. Think about that in light of the convoy stuff we've been seeing. Is there any part of the climate planning we've been hearing from our federal government that communicates to people that in fact a more just and equal society awaits them at the other end of this transition? The point in recalling all of this as we face today's threat and the need for mobilization is twofold. First, to appreciate how inequality is a barrier to cross-society mobilization, and second, to understand that effective mobilization is not just about building more planes or tanks or today wind turbines and solar panels. It requires policies that fulfill that promise that we will better look after one another and that we will guarantee good jobs and income supports to all and that people will be treated with dignity and fairness. When you're asking people to share in a great undertaking, that's how you keep everyone on the bus. And those kinds of measures that are needed again today, they find, I think, an historic echo in the Green New Deal, right? And that's why when you poll, you know, do public polling on the Green New Deal, what it clearly shows is that when ambitious climate action is linked to tackling inequality and a good jobs guarantee for fossil fuel workers, support for the bold climate action doesn't go down, it goes through the roof. It records levels of support more than any political party gets. Maybe well, in Q&A we can hopefully talk a little bit more about the jobs question, but I've been talking for a lot and I want to offer one final lesson. And it is this, that indigenous leadership and rights and title are central to winning. Now, I want to make this point by sharing a little story from my book about a World War II vet. One morning as I was writing in 2019, a news item came across the radio about the death of Louis Levi Oaks, the last of the Mohawk code talkers from the community of Akwesasne. You know, in the same way that it had been important to the Canadian government to declare war independently from Britain in 1939, interestingly, the Iroquois Confederacy, of which the Mohawk are members, also independently declared war on Germany, which resulted in many Mohawk men enlisting. Oaks died at the age of 94. The code talkers were indigenous soldiers who were tasked with using their own languages to communicate secret military information among the Allied forces. In news reports after Oaks' death, his daughter revealed that astonishingly, Oaks hadn't told his family what he did during the war for seven decades, having been sworn to secrecy only in his late 80s when stories of the code talkers were made more public did he finally reveal what he had done 
Folks was then awarded the Congressional Silver Medal and special honors from the Assembly of First Nations and the Canadian House of Commons. Oaks was one of 17 code talkers, code talkers from Aquasasti, but there were hundreds of others from Indigenous nations across North America. As the war was unfolding, these secret mili- the, the secret codes employed by the Allies kept getting broken by the Nazis and the Japanese forces until the U.S. Marines discovered that the enemy forces couldn't crack Navajo. And ultimately, 33 Indigenous languages were used by various branches of the Allied forces, including a number from nations in Canada, like Mohawk language and Cree, Tlingit, Ojibwe. But as I learned of this, it struck me that there is, in this piece of the wartime story, a tragic irony. Our two countries, Canada and the US, have spent generations trying to erase Indigenous languages from the earth, literally beating them out of children in residential schools only to uncover that these languages were the unbreakable code. That's what they were dubbed in the war, credited as having been vital to victory in certain battles, particularly in the Pacific. And then we fast forward to today. And I think the same can be said about indigenous rights and title, which similarly, our two countries have spent generations systematically abusing and violating. And yet as our mainstream politics dithers and dodges on meaningful and coherent climate action over and over again, It is the assertion of indigenous title and rights that keeps buying us time, slowing and blocking new fossil fuel projects until our larger politics comes into compliance with the science. In fact, just a few months ago, um, the Indigenous Environmental Network in the States and Oil Change International released a report that sought to tally up all the GHGs that have been kept in the ground because of these indigenous-led uh, blockades and protests, and they they calculated it to be approximately 25% of North American domestic emissions. Wow. Final thoughts. Like many of you, as I read the latest scientific warnings, I, I'm afraid. In particular, I feel deep anxiety about the state of the world we're leaving my kids and yours and those who are going to live out through most of this century and beyond. All of us who take seriously these scientific realities wrestle with despair. That's the ambiguous time in which we live. The truth is, we don't know if we're going to win this fight, if we're going to do what we need to do in time. But consider this. In the Second World War, from a population at the time of about 11 million people in Canada, over 1 million enlisted. Remarkable then. 64% of them under the age of 21. But it's worth appreciating all of those people who rallied in the face of fascism 80 years ago. You know what they didn't know? They didn't know if they would win. We often forget that there was a good chunk of the war's early years during which the outcome was far from certain. We know how their story ended, but they didn't. Yet that generation rallied regardless. And in the process, they surprised themselves by what they were capable of achieving, not just on the battlefront, but on the home front too. I think that's the spirit we need today. Friends, these next few years are make it or break it for us. This is it. And for us and our kids and our grandkids and our nieces and our nephews, we are at a crossroads moment. And we all have to decide what kind of people we want to be. Just as the Second World War ended the Great Depression and banished unemployment, as we rebuild from this pandemic, an ambitious climate plan with massive green infrastructure spending, a Green New Deal can be just what's needed. The vital and urgent challenge now is to ensure that we use this opening to catapult us into a post-carbon economy. I also want to highlight, you know, I've been making a lot of comparisons between the pandemic and, and, and this climate moment. Um, and I know many of you are thinking about what's been unfolding in Ottawa in the last week. But I want to highlight one notable difference between the pandemic and the climate crossroads moment. People talk about COVID fatigue, and that's real. This has been hard. A lot of people are feeling pain and pent up. And some people have responded to my thesis by saying, you know, look how quickly people tired of emergency mode in the pandemic. And, and now here you are asking that we spend multiple years in emergency mode to tackle the climate crisis. But here's the distinction. The things that we have been called upon to do in response to the pandemic, 
They are anathema to all of our social instincts. Isolate, stay home, that is hard. The good news about the climate mobilization is that it calls on us to do precisely the opposite, to get out there and do something grand together. I think we can do that for a few years. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, Seth. That was uh, really remarkable, and, and uh, it's just your your framing, your drawing upon the World War II experience is just incredibly uh, uh, powerful. And so now uh, we have half an hour for Q and A, uh, and I'll, I'll repeat what Mia said. Um, we we have all the mics on mute just to make sure we have some editorial control. Uh, given the volumes of people, we're not we're entirely sure, you know, uh, who, who may come in. And so uh, simply take the chat function and write out your question. Uh, Mia will gather them up and she'll maybe um, uh, read them aloud, uh, take one or two at a time, and uh, Seth can, can respond and, and that, that, that's how it, it will uh, work. So, and we already have quite a few. And if I may, uh, Brian, I'm going to throw some things in the chat, uh, um, uh, a link uh, for people who want to more information about the book, but also um, uh, a link to the climate emergency uh, unit where, where I now work and uh, so that people can do that. Yeah, and if you want, I think we can, uh, if you provide us with that information, we can email everybody. Yes, yes, I think I've provided that to, to Mia, so that should come afterwards as well. There we go. Yep. Okay. Okay. So um, I I think I'll start off with a question that uh, is sort of great for you to share some resources. So this question comes from grade twelve students or grade sorry grade twelve. So I guess it's a classroom watching um, on the west coast, and so they want to know if you could give advice um, to students who are graduating now of how to make decisions that would make a difference what would it be mm, great question and thanks for tuning in um i hinted at this a little bit um when i when i mentioned this idea that i have in the book and i've written about since about a youth climate corps um I mentioned just in my closing there, this remarkable statistic that of the million plus Canadians that enlisted in World War II, 64% uh, of them were like you. They were under the age of 21. And so all of those hundreds of thousands of young people, in the face of an emergency, they left their farms, they delayed their careers, they deferred their university studies because the emergency was in that moment. Um, and here you all are, finishing grade 12. Um, I often think, well, what would I do if I was finishing grade 12 right now? And that's where I sort of land with this Youth Climate Corps idea. I, I don't think I would be particularly keen to be told, you know, go to university and delay taking action by four or five years. Because as I say, so much hinges on what we do just now in the next few. Um, I wish that there was a program like that in place where those of you who are ready to meet this moment would have a place, ideally in combination with a post-secondary institution where you could both combine study with rolling up your sleeves to meet this moment in, in, in a way that, that uh, jives with your, your interests and your skills and your passions and can set that kind of future course I think we dearly need that and in the absence of those official programs um, maybe you need to create it for yourselves um, and with all due respect to the post-secondary instructors on this call you, you may find that to be more formative for what's to come for the future decades uh, than a more traditional and spending spending the next few years in a more traditional program and I would say to those of you who are with post-secondary institutions, uh, if your university is not figuring out how its incoming students can combine their studies with you with meeting this emergency in this moment, then the best of this generation will come to your university. Thank you. 
Thank you. So I'm going to give you um, two questions that I think are, are related and you can either answer them or whatever works best for you. So one of the questions is, um, your book was written in urban BC, perhaps one of the most progressive left environmental places in Canada. Can you share your experience talking with people in other parts of Canada, including on the East Coast, where many people work directly in the fossil fuel industry and where culturally and economically it's quite different? And then um, another question um, was, how can we better support Indigenous communities and land protectors that are on the front line who are facing persecution because they defend against the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Two quite different questions, and they're both great. So on that first one, it's true, I'm, I'm here in Vancouver, uh, in British Columbia, where there's quite, a, quite an active uh, environmental movement. Although, let's be clear, um, even with a social democratic government, we are not in emergency mode out here. Um, and they're pursuing liquefied natural gas that if it proceeds will become one of the largest point sources of new carbon emissions in the country. We got our work cut out for us here too. Um, I'm happy to say that I have found, you know, terrific take up and interest and, and resonance with the message of the book across the country. And the climate emergency unit that I'm sharing there um, uh, is, uh, is across the country, including we have a, 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 one of our team members, Emma Norton, in Halifax, uh, and working with folks in Newfoundland where there is an offshore oil industry. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. You'll see um, in Chapter 3 of the book is around public opinion. And um, the opinion polling, much of the climate opinion polling drives me crazy because I feel like it asks the wrong questions. It asks questions about pe people's openness to incremental changes. Um, and yet we've run out the clock on incremental changes. Um, so I actually commissioned my own polling from Abacus Data as part of my research for the book, which I share in Chapter 3. And as you might expect, the support for bold climate action ranges from a high, not actually in British Columbia, the highest levels are actually in Quebec and British Columbia, to a low in Alberta. But even in Alberta, it's remarkably strong. Um, uh, like, I feel like we, we tend to paint you know the prairies with this broad brush and and let jason kenny defend de define the political culture uh of that province and we do them a disservice um the appetite is there too that said it, this is one of the things i find very troubling about the federal government's approach which is you know while they're mo moving on climate in some respects and i think we're going to start to see a decline in our emissions not at the pitch and pace that we need but a modest decline, they have yet to make a compelling offer to workers in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland who are reliant on these industries. And they and we must. But I also want to put that in context. Right? And again, I, I with, with all my answers, I'm going to be your weird uncle and keep coming back to the war, okay? There are about 300,000 Canadians directly employed in the fossil fuel industry today, mostly in those three provinces, but northeast of my province too and elsewhere. 300,000 is a lot. We need to make that compelling offer, a real just transition plan and real investments for those people. But consider this, as you heard me say, in the war from a population less than a third what it is today, over a million Canadians enlisted, over a million Canadians were directly employed in military production. All of those people had to be recruited and trained, and then six years later, reintegrated back into a peacetime economy. And we did that with these audacious income support programs and housing support programs, training programs that doubled the size effectively of the post-secondary sector in Canada and changed the lives of thousands of people. If, if we could do that then, we can do the, the task today is actually less hard than it was then if we can bring a similar spirit uh, and ambition to it 
as uh, on the question around indigenous land protectors, this is my point of repeating what, what the lesson, I, the last of the lessons that I offered. We need to be uh, acting in solidarity with uh, those actions. We owe them a huge debt. Um, uh, and I also think there's a bit of a, if you read the book, there's a bit of a Where's Waldo game in the book. Um, uh, a, a Where's Waldo game of uh, 